Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thank you once again for inviting us into your wherever you are. This is episode number 26 of The Next Track and is being brought to you by Drobo, a family of safe, expandable, yet simple-to-use storage arrays. Drobos are designed to protect your important data forever. For more information, visit drobo.com and keep listening for details on how you can save $100 on your next purchase of a Drobo product. We've been getting a lot of questions from our listeners, thank you, and many of them are quite technical, and Kirk and I didn't feel confident that we could answer them properly. So when that happens, we like to turn to our friend Andy Doe for the answers. Andy wears a lot of hats. He is a digital music label and marketing consultant, a record producer, and just an all-around smart and fun guy that we like having on the show. Andy, as always, thanks for being with us. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. While we've been covering a number of technical issues on the show, and particularly a recent show on subwoofers that Andy helped us understand a lot better, we realized that not all of these questions merit an entire episode of the podcast. So today we're launching a new, let's say, irregular series of episodes we're going to call Ask Andy. Because Andy has answers for lots of technical questions, don't you, Andy? Also, I'm highly irregular. You are. <laughs> Good point. So what we're going to do today is we're going to go through a bunch of reader questions. These are all technical about sound and audio and electronics, and we'll see what Andy has to say. A common question we've got is about speaker placement. And this is actually a big deal among audio people. How do you set up your speakers? What can you suggest, Andy, for people who've got, let's just start with two speakers, because it'll be a topic on another show to talk about a multi-channel system, which is a lot more complicated. What's the best way to set up a pair of speakers? Okay, so a pair of speakers, the most important thing you want to do in a stereo setup is to try and create a symmetrical system. So uh, if, if your room has a huge bay window on one wall, then you don't want that huge bay window on one side of the listening environment. If you have a huge chimney breast, you don't want that on one side. You either want that in front of you or behind you. Uh, so that you're creating a symmetrical space either side of the speakers, either side of the listener. And that will prevent you from getting lots of reflected sound off one side that's going to upset or disrupt the, the stereo image. It's going to sound much more realistic if you can then get yourself in the middle of the room uh, from left to right in this symmetrical situation. You don't want to be up against the wall on one side or the other. The next thing you want to do is to... Arrange your speakers, if at all possible, so that your ears are at one point of an equilateral triangle with the speakers the same distance away from each other as they are from you. So that's each one 60 degrees off to the side. And you can generally tell when you're well positioned, if your balance is in the center on your amplifier, if you're well positioned, the sound will be perfectly balanced. If, you're, if each ear is the same distance from a speaker. That's right. Although... You will notice that if you have something in front of one of the speakers or if one of them is next to some big soft curtains or is uh, next to a, a bookcase, then these things are going to affect the sound. So if you can, you want to have the speakers in a similar situation to each other. Then we can talk about what the ideal placement would be. But first and foremost, you want them in similar situations. Then um, you've got to think about where in the in the room you put them. If you have a completely blank, featureless, rectangular room, then you want to have the speakers pointing down the length of the room and not, not across the narrow side, ideally. Uh, of course, it's not, it's not always possible to achieve that. And 
a lot of rooms are at such an irregular shape that that's not really possible. If your room is completely square, then you can set up a, a diagonal listening situation without creating a uh, an asymmetrical issue. Right. So my desk is pointed toward one corner of my office, which is more or less square. And at the other end, I have a comfortable chair. And that's where I do a lot of my reading and listening back there. And I found when I moved into this office, I found I, I actually planned my positioning as much for the sound as I did for my desk and my working. Because I realized, as you say, if you have a big window and I've got a window on one side and a window on another, and I figured that this would be the best location both for my position working, so you don't want to be in front of a window when you're working on a computer, for instance, but also in terms of listening. So it makes a sort of a rhomboid shape, and that way you don't get those quick reflections off the side walls. There's more space to the side for the sound to sort of envelop you as a listener when you're back in a corner. That's right. You're less likely to get uh, direct reflections off the wall. And those those reflected sounds, if you're not used to listening in a completely dead room, those reflected sounds will seem quite natural. You are hearing the room you're in and not the room the music was recorded in, which is which is what the engineer was hoping for when they recorded the record. What about the height of the speakers? So... Uh, Height is one of the things that's usually relatively easy to control. So this is something we should we should try and get right. You want the tweeters on the speakers, the small drivers pointing at your ears. They're the most directional bit of this. So you want them to be at the same height level with your ears and, and pointing at you. The larger speakers, the woofers, it doesn't matter so much. So it tends to be that they're they're lower down and so long as they're pointing roughly in your general direction, they'll be fine. And for anyone who wants to know about setting up a subwoofer, episode 21, we cover subwoofers. As for how far into the room you set up your speakers, the ideal situation is that you want to put your ears about 40% of the way across the room from the wall that you're facing. But that may be incompatible with the advice on uh, positioning speakers the right distance from the wall. Genelec gives... Uh, Genelec is a... a high-quality speaker manufacturer, they give the advice that you should put your speakers either less than one metre from the wall behind them or more than 2.2 metres from the wall behind them. And the reason that they advise this is that if you're a metre and a half from the wall, then you can have this situation where audible bass sounds are leaving the back of the speaker as well as the front, bouncing off the wall, coming back and cancelling out the sound that they've, they've caught up with at the speaker. So you want to you want to avoid that meter to two meters distance from from the wall. Of course, inevitably, it's going to be extremely hard to achieve all of these conditions in a in a realistic home listening environment. Uh, and my suggestion would be to have a good play around with this. And whatever you do, if you want if you want one simple rule, uh, don't put your listening position exactly in the middle of the room because of all of the acoustic problems that you'll encounter in different parts of the room, that the very centre of the room is going to be the place where you have the most acoustic problems. You'll have the most frequencies cancelled out. You'll have the most obnoxious reflection problems. So avoid the middle of the room. Great. All right. Let's move on to the next question. Inevitably, we get lots of questions about iTunes. And this one concerns some of the iTunes playback effects. If you look in iTunes, there is a playback preference pane. And this contains a couple of features that 
people don't really understand. And, and to be quite honest, I don't understand them entirely. One is called Soundcheck, and iTunes says it is automatically adjusts song playback volume to the same level. What this does basically is loud music gets muted and soft music gets played a little bit louder. So when you switch from one song to another, it doesn't sound like too much of a shock. The other is called Sound Enhancer, and I have never, ever found an explanation of exactly what that does. Why would you want to use Soundcheck or not? And why would you want to use Sound Enhancer? Okay, so Soundcheck is the relatively simple one here. When you record an album and you, you're getting it ready to make the final copy that's going to go into production, you do your mastering where you make sure that each track is at about the same volume as all of the other tracks and that they sound pretty similar so that when you listen to one after the other, it's not going to be jarring, one's not going to be too loud, one's not going to be too quiet. But what you don't generally do is compare your recording to all of the other CDs on the market to make sure that they're at comfortable, comparable volume. And different styles of music require different mastering levels. So if if you're recording a piece of classical music that has one very loud bit in the middle, you have to turn it all down to accommodate the very loud bit. If you're recording a, a Disney pop song, which is a kind of twinkly, sparkling, blaring roar from start to finish, then it's all about the same volume and you can turn it all the way up. And if you're going to play one of these after the other, the Disney pop song is going to sound really obnoxiously loud. So what Soundcheck does is it, it scans the files, figures out what the normal level is through through this and then adjusts them all so that it'll sound nice when you go from one to the next. Now, does Soundcheck permanently change the sound of the file or does this work only when you're playing back? Okay, so uh, what it does is it scans it and it marks in the metadata for that file an adjustment, the number of dB that it should be turned up or down. So it's a completely non-destructive process. And it, it's not changing your files to use Soundcheck. You can turn it on, see what it's like, turn it off if you don't like it. There are possible occasions where you would encounter undesired outcomes as a result of using Soundcheck. But to encounter them, you would have to be using iTunes for something a bit weird. I've had very bad results. I found that a lot of solo piano music sounded horrendous. Can you describe the issue that you were having? Well, they, they, they sounded kind of crunchy. They sounded like there was a tad of distortion. Okay, it's unlikely that that's a direct result of Soundcheck turning it up or down. It's more likely that that's an issue with the playback equipment you were you were using what happens with piano music is that the the very beginnings of the notes on the piano are much much louder than the sustained part of the note there's this there's this big transient uh almost a click when the hammer hits the string and if that's turned up too loud for some component in the signal chain then you get a crunch at the beginning of every single note and the, the way to compensate for that is to is to go through and turn each thing down until until that's gone away. So what about Sound Enhancer? Do you know what that does? I've never found an explanation, even on Apple's website. They just say it does things to make music sound better, is all they say. Okay, so Sound Enhancer is, is a little bit different to Soundcheck in that it does something more complicated. If you, if you Google this, you'll get various explanations of, of what it is that Sound Enhancer is trying to do. And there's a couple of things that are commonly done to make music sound better in, in inverted commas. The first is that if you've got little tiny speakers and you want them to sound like big speakers, you boost the bass and to some extent the very high notes too. And this will, this will make it sound like bigger speakers. But what it's doing is, is compensating for uh, 
a physical weakness in the in the playback hardware, which might sound good on your laptop, but uh, when you're listening to it through a, a better system, will sound kind of false and boomy, and and you'll miss out a lot of the stuff in the middle, whilst at the same time annoying the people in the next room. To the same degree, wouldn't you say that the equalizer is also only good for like laptop speakers? I know I get asked a lot of the time, people want to change the EQ to match the genre. For instance, if they're playing piano music, they think the EQ should be set to piano. And if they're playing acoustic music, they think the EQ should be set to acoustic. But really, isn't that only to compensate for very small speakers on a laptop? Well, it's certainly to compensate for something. The, uh, the person who makes this record was assuming that you would be listening to it on full range speakers with all of the EQ set exactly in the middle. And then they will have made it sound the way they wanted it to sound. They're not expecting you to set the EQ to piano in order to make the piano music sound good. They have those controls and they've already used them. So unless you're compensating for some technical weakness in the playback equipment, you are not going to get closer to the sound the producer intended by fiddling with the EQ. So basically, if you have decent stereo equipment, you shouldn't bother with any of these features. Absolutely. And it's it's worth considering that there is no feature there in iTunes that was not available to the person who made this record in the first place. This is not a choice that the, the producer made. And, and the producer was aware that you might listen to this out of your laptop. And the producer almost certainly listen to it out of a laptop to see how it sounded. So nothing bad is going to happen if you use either of these features. Both of them are non-destructive. They only affect the sound you're hearing while you're playing it back. But if the producer wanted it to sound like that, would have made it sound like that. We're going to pause here and we'll get back to this Ask Andy episode of The Next Track in just a minute. Listeners to the next track, I'm sure, consider their media file collection quite precious, and a great way to store and back up your precious collection is with a storage array from Drobo. Your hard drive can fill up fast, right? And being a mechanical device can fail. But a Drobo storage array is expandable, allowing you to add drives to increase capacity when you need to. Traditional RAID systems won't let you mix and match drive sizes, but a Drobo will by virtue of its patented Beyond RAID technology. If you're the family IT guy, like I know I am, Drobo takes a lot of the detail work out of managing your storage because a Drobo storage array is designed to be simple. And with Drobo apps, you can configure your Drobo to manage backups, stream media, interface with cloud services, and your data transfers will be encrypted end-to-end -to, -end to ensure you have complete security. Go to Drobo.com and check out the entire family of safe, secure, expandable, and simple-to-use storage arrays. And right now, listeners of the next track can save $100 on a Drobo 5N, a Drobo 5D, or Drobo 5DT by using the code TRACK100 at DroboStore.com. Save $100 with the promo code TRACK100 at DroboStore.com. Drobo, simple-to-use storage arrays designed to keep your data safe forever. Okay, here's a recording question. A listener wrote in and said, when artists record in studios, do they still record analog or do they record directly in digital? The vast majority of people making new recordings today will record straight to digital. We're recording this podcast straight to digital. And we're using high-quality equipment to make the best possible high-resolution podcast recording available. Yes, we use only the finest bespoke digits. Absolutely. But it is certainly possible to record to tape and then convert that at some point in the editing mixing process to digital. It's also possible to record it to digital, do all of the things you want to do in the 
digital domain, the editing and some of the mixing. Then when you've mixed it down, copy it onto tape to acquire some of the hiss and the distortion, the, the unique effects that you get from recording to tape, and then copy it back off the tape into a digital format so that you can finish mastering your CD. Some listeners may remember a few episodes ago, we had mastering engineer Sonny Naman, and he was saying how he's unable to find any digital plugins that meet his mastering standards, so he uses analog plugins. So he flips from digital to analog, and then after he's done everything, he flips it back to digital. Well, now, there are uh, two different types of analog here. There's analog recording, where essentially we're talking about tape or, or vinyl, where it's stored on an analog medium. But you also have analog manipulation of sound, where you convert the digital file into a series of analog electrical signals, and then you process it through compressors and equalizers and things as as an analog signal, and then take it straight back to digital without ever storing it in that analog domain. It's certainly very common for effects to be applied on the analog signal before it's stored at all. So it will come into the mixing desk, it might have some compression, a little bit of EQ, and then it goes off to the recorder, and that recorder could be a tape machine, it could be a digital recorder, it could be a computer. Uh, so it is extremely common for some analog processing to occur before the sound is stored, either in the analog or digital format. The advantages of storing audio on a digital format are that it is it is cheap and it's easy and you get very reliable predictable quality um, tape is noisy it's unstable it's difficult to edit it's very easy to completely destroy it uh, it's it's expensive you're paying a dollar a minute just to just to record in stereo and this from a man who has a reel-to-reel -reel tape deck behind him hey well i used uh, tape for years and i i love the sound of it i love the warmth of it but really these days it's just not feasible to use it all the time a absolutely and when i want all of those things i will record on on analog you know it, it, there are times when you want to be discouraged from constantly fiddling and constantly editing there are times when what what you want is to be forced to accept a complete performance or to know that there is there is great inconvenience to creating an edit and if i'm playing around recording at home i like to play with the tape if i've got an orchestra sitting there and this is costing me twenty thousand pounds a day to record then I really, really, really want to not take any chances. And that means doing this in digital format where I know we're going to get it, I know it's going to sound good, and we're not going to have to filter out noise or accidentally lose a tape or look after these fragile, unstable things. Good point. So a reader wrote in with a question. He said, how did the people who invented CDs manage to overlook the idea of setting a few kilobytes aside for titles? As you know, if you put a CD into your computer and in iTunes or another player and you're connected to the internet, you can download information from Gracenote or, or another database. And this displays the titles, artist, album name, and all that sort of stuff. But if you put it in your car stereo, you don't have any of that information. Why? Well, the simple answer to this is that when they invented CDs, they did not overlook the idea of setting aside a few kilobytes for titles. And there is this function called CD text, which can store just this type of metadata on a CD. And when you master a CD, uh, the mastering software you use has, has fields for you to type all of this in, and it will be stored on the CD. Some CD players can read this. A lot of car CD players now can read this. The issue here is that the majority of mastering engineers seem not to use this and so while i always insist on this being filled in and done properly when i'm making a record 
the vast majority of mainstream pop records seem to miss this out and as a result when they built the uh, iTunes player and kind of competing applications they don't rely on CD text and instead rely on CDDB and these these other metadata databases but uh, Doug I believe you have a solution for this yeah, if you have a CD that you've purchased that has CD text or, or you've created one in iTunes, because iTunes does support writing CD text to CDs that you burn at your house, I have a script called CD text to CD info. And what it will do is it will read the CD text from a mounted CD in iTunes and then take that information and parse it and do whatever it needs to do and apply it to the tags of the tracks on the CD so that when you rip it, you'll get the information that the CD producer or you, if it's a CD that you burned, uh, you'll get that information applied directly to the tracks. So that Apple script, again, it's called CD Text to CD Info, and it's available at my site, and we'll have the obligatory link in the show notes to it. We have a couple questions about different formats. One reader asks about a new audio format from Japan called Blue Spec CD2. I hadn't heard of this before. This is a kind of offshoot of Blu-ray in that it uses a blue laser to create the pits in the CD master and the blue laser is focused in a different way and so creates pits that are a slightly different shape. The idea here is that you end up with a higher quality master that you can play back on an ordinary CD player. Now the CD specification has been around for almost as long as I have and it has worked very well this whole time. If there was anything really seriously wrong with the way that CDs were mastered in the first place then we would know about this by now because it's a digital format and you can very easily compare the original with the copy that you just burned to CD. And CD has a huge amount of error correction built in to prevent errors from persisting and, and to, to compensate for any small errors in the, in the recording or playback. And this means that I really think there is no need for a new new mastering technology like this the blue spec cd2 seems to me to be a, a shiny thing that can be used and will do no harm but is is a solution looking for a problem related there's a new format called mqa now as i understand it this is a proprietary format it's a lossy format it's not a lossless format and it requires that you have special hardware to play it back can you tell us anything about this 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 is an unbelievably tough sell, isn't it? You're trying to sell uh, lossy encoding to an audiophile market. Part of the idea behind MQA is, is quite a persuasive idea that uh, if you use a lossy encoding system, but you're willing to make the files as large as a 16-bit 44K WAV file, you're, you're willing to make the files very, very large, then you are able to transmit a huge amount of data. And this is how MQA can promise to deliver higher than CD quality in a file that is the, the same size as an ordinary lossless CD quality audio file. But MQA is used for streaming, right? So if you've got the bandwidth, you should be able to stream any size file you want. But the idea is to be able to stream better quality without stretching the bandwidth oh well me yeah there's there's also this thing built into it where there's a kind of chain of custody issue where you know that it hasn't been upsampled because it's got some sort of drm like lock that establishes that this is the master quality as as delivered 
by the mastering engineer. It does strike me as a little bit odd that, that anybody would need that. Um, if you can't tell whether or not something's been upsampled from a low-res file by listening to it, then you don't need the high-res file in the first place. Let's get this straight. It's a lossy compressed audio file with DRM that requires a proprietary decoder in order to get the benefits. I think I'll stick with my Apple lossless files or FLAC files. Yeah, it's not the next big thing. Okay, well, this wraps up our first Ask Andy episode. Andy Doe, thanks very much for answering all these questions. It's a pleasure. And listeners, if you have any questions, you can contact us at thenexttrack.com. We have a contact form. Send in your questions, and maybe we'll get Andy to answer them next time. Thanks, Andy. Thank you. Before we present our next tracks, we'd like to thank this episode's sponsor, Drobo, a family of simple-to-use storage arrays designed to keep your data safe forever. And be sure to use the promo code TRACK100 to save $100 on your next purchase of a Drobo 5N, a Drobo 5D, or a Drobo 5DT at drobostore.com. That's TRACK100 at drobostore.com. Kirk, what's your next track? So my next track this week is arguably the greatest piece of classical chamber music ever written. It's Franz Schubert's String Quintet. The recording I've been listening to is by the Emerson String Quartet and Mstislav Rostropovich. I have been obsessed by this piece since I first heard it 30, 35 years ago. It is an extraordinary piece of music. And Doug, you should give it a listen. You can get it on Apple Music. Will do. It's hard to say why it's so great. And in fact, I'm not going to say too much why it's so great, because just everyone go out and listen to it. Either this recording or another, Schubert String Quintet. I chose this one in particular, and I, and I picked the box set by the Emerson String Quartet a couple months ago on this show as, as my next track. The sound on this is really, really good. The Emerson Quartet is a very precise quartet. Rostropovich is excellent. The balance is wonderful. And just listen to this. It's Schubert String Quintet. Emerson Quartet and Rostropovich. Doug, what about you this week? Comedy albums used to be pretty popular. Remember, nowadays, YouTube and the streaming services provide plenty of stand-up material and things like that. But I don't think there will ever be anything like the Firesign Theater, the satirical comedy troupe that had a heyday in the 70s, mostly. I like uh, most all their albums, but my favorite is Don't Crush That Dwarf, Hand Me the Pliers from 1970. As kids in junior high school, a friend and I memorized virtually the entire album, probably not unlike what a lot of kids did, uh, and it usually took several listenings to grasp the entirety of what they were talking about. This album is ostensibly about the media and the over-commercialization of everything, but satirical content aside, what I really enjoyed were uh, the recording studio techniques and effects that helped create this vast self-contained universe with its own historical and social and cultural norms that was much more expansive than the two sides of the album's contents. In fact, it's probably one of the reasons why I like a show like the Venture Brothers nowadays. And in fact, it, the Firesign Theater was a huge inspiration on the kind of radio I ended up doing for a morning show for many years in the 80s. It's not for all tastes, but if you enjoy cerebral, avant-garde, way-out humor, you might like my next track. The Firesign Theater, Don't Crush That Dwarf, Hand Me the Pliers, Shoes for Industry. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>